0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Austin, Texas, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Austin. Plus, syndicated more generalized recordings of live and pre recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Austin. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning. Welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr. And today we have a class that I think is going to surprise a lot of folks. What if I told you? Like, this sounds like such a like sleazy, uh, you know, like uh, infomercial pitch. But uh, but go with me for a minute here. What if I told you I could save you, on average, four years off of financial independence. Four years of working at a job that you don't like. And have you be able to be financially independent four years earlier? Or what if I told you it was seven years on median? And, and what if I told you, because everyone's all crazy worried and paranoid right now, you know, we've we've seen interest rates rise over the last, I don't know, year and a half or so, whatever it's been. Um, you know, they, they went from like all-time lows, um, how, how quickly we forget that they're all-time lows, not just, uh, you know, Lows, <laughs> but how quickly we went from like all-time lows to not even all-time highs, I mean, just more like reasonable ranges for mortgage interest rates, um, kind of in the middle range of what we would see normally. What if I told you that I could help you avoid having to deal with higher interest rates completely? Well, that is what today's class is all about. The class is called, is it better? To nomad, do the nomad real estate investing strategy, which we'll talk about here, or buy rentals for cash. If you buy rentals for cash, you don't have to deal with mortgage interest rates at all. So today, what we're going to do, if I can get the screen to go, uh, we're going to look at me doing modeling for over 300 U.S. cities. And then I will compare someone who does the nomad real estate investing strategy. Versus someone who does not do the Nomad real estate investing strategy and saves up their money and buys rental properties for all cash. They ignore whatever is going on with interest rates. And I know that you're thinking to yourself, you know, James, that would take forever. You know, it takes me long enough to save up for my 5% down payment to buy my next Nomad property. You know, to save up a hundred percent, to save up, you know, whatever it's going to be, you know, five hundred thousand dollars, depending on the market, in order to buy a, a rental property all cash, that is going to take forever. There's no way that's going to be faster to getting me to financial independence than doing this nomad strategy and acquiring, you know, ten properties for fifty percent of the down payments because you know five percent times ten is fifty percent if I'm doing my math right. So in the same time, I can save up for half of a full property. I'm able to buy 10 Nomad properties. There's no way that buying a property free and clear, all cash, saving up that money is going to get me there faster. And won't you be surprised? <laughs> That's what we're going to see today. It's going to be awesome. So, uh, so I modeled this in over 300 U.S. cities. Um, and, and here's what we're going to be comparing. In both scenarios, I've made the assumption, and, and, and before I even go into this comparison here, I will tell you that. Assumptions matter. And if we change one little thing, for example, I'm about to tell you that everybody is buying an owner-occupant property first. So they're all buying a property to move into 5% down. They're going to live there. And they're going to, depending on whether it's doing the nomad strategy or they're buying the rentals, they're either going to live there forever or they're going to live there until they buy their next property. However, what I'm going to point out to you is if we change any assumption, if we say, look, uh, they're not gonna buy an owner occupied property first. They're gonna rent, you know, as an example, although it's hard to rent when you're doing nomad, but they're gonna they're gonna rent the property. That would change some of our assumptions. If if we see properties appreciate faster or slower than what we've assumed, that will change things. If we see interest rates go up or down, that will change things. So this is a very static set of assumptions. And I'll I'll let you see all the assumptions I have. I'll give you a link to do that. But in both scenarios, getting back to the, the actual meat of the presentation, in both scenarios, they're going to be buying an owner-occupant property first. They're going to be buying a property. So they're going to save up until they have 5% down. Uh, then they're going to buy an owner-occupant property. They're going to live there. And they're going to either stay there forever, or if they're doing the nomad strategy, they're going to use that to kind of bounce into the next property. Okay, so in both cases, though, whether they're buying rentals all cash, or they're doing nomad, they're both buying an owner-occupant property moving in there first. With the nomad, the nomad strategy is someone basically buying a property, moving into the property, living there for at least a year, then converting the previous property to a rental moving into the next property with 5% down or 3% down, in this case, we're doing 5%, but moving in there with some low down payment, owner-occupant loan, uh, living there for a year, then converting that one to rental and repeating the process until they have as many rentals as they desire, okay? So with the Nomad strategy, I'm specifically saying they're saving up until they could buy 5% down, owner-occupant properties. They're gonna live in that property for at least a year and until they've saved it up to buy the next property, because sometimes that's more than a year, it, takes, it might take them more than a year to save up 5%. And we, we, we acknowledge that, we plan for that, we model that in our, in our analysis. And then they repeat that until they have up to 10 properties total, nine rentals, and then one that they're living in. The last one that they purchase, it also happens to be the most expensive property that they purchase, because property values are going up over time, is also the last one to be paid off. So that's the last property to become free and clear because the other properties they paid off, they're all on 30-year mortgages. They pay off after 30 years. The last one they bought is at least 10 years later. And so that one pays off after year 40, okay? They buy the next property when they've saved enough for down payment, plus closing costs, plus six months of reserves for personal expenses, plus six months of reserves on any properties they already own to that point and the property they're about to buy. And they can qualify for the loan based on a 45% debt to income ratio. So they have to be able to qualify. We're not just saying, you know, you could buy a property and not qualify you. And you need to have the down payment. You'd have the closing costs. You need to have the reserves. The only thing more conservative I probably could have done is to say you need to have any negative cash flow saved up, which we're not going to go over here, but that is probably a more conservative thing for us to do. Okay. So that's what the Nomad people are doing. The the buying rentals for cash people, they're going to buy an owner-occupant property, they're going to move in there, they're going to live there forever. Then they're going to save up until they buy um, properties for all cash with closing costs and reserves. They're not getting any loans at all except for their initial owner-occupant purchase where they move in. And they're going to buy... Up to nine rentals this way, although I will tell you, because you have free and clear properties and the cash flow on a free and clear property is so much better than buying a property with little down or even regular 20%, 25% down, you need a lot fewer of these in order to qualify to be financially independent. Okay. Uh, If you want to see my detailed modeling of all this stuff and be able to kind of mouse over on the charts and see my assumptions and drill down to stuff or see any updates, because if I change any of the numbers, those numbers will change. You can go to the link on the page. I'll put that in the show notes. uh, If you're listening to this on the podcast as well, that way you can click through and watch it. Okay. So one of the things we're going to measure is how long it takes them to be financially dependent. The other thing we're going to measure is Um, what their net worth is at year 40. So we're going to arbitrarily pick year 40 and say, at year 40, what's their net worth? And also how many months or years it takes for them to be financially independent. And so I should probably define for you what financially independent means to me so that you understand what the math is. So they're financially independent when the income from their investments exceeds their expenses. And each city has its own expenses. If you live in a more expensive city, you make more money. So your savings rate is higher. I mean, the dollar amount you're saving, it, it changes based on where what city you're in. Um, still the same percentage. But then the amount of money you make in different markets changes because the prices of properties in those markets change as well. So in order for you to be financially independent, though, you need to overcome whatever that income is. You need to replace the income you were making in that city. So more expensive markets, they may make more money, but they also have a higher threshold, a higher bar in order to be financially independent. Okay, so in order to replace that income, it needs to come from these five sources. So there's five ones that we're really not doing anything with in this particular modeling, but do come into play. So any passive income from Social Security, any passive income from any annuities that they might buy, and any passive income from any pensions. We're not doing any modeling with that. We're really primarily focused in on two sources of income for the modeling that we're doing. But those other three would normally count in order to see if somebody were financially dependent. The two that we're primarily focusing on in on is the net positive cash flow. Many rental properties. So you take all the income they're getting from their rental properties and you subtract out all the expenses they have on that property vacancy, principal and interest payments from their mortgage. If they have one, some of these guys are buying free and clear. Uh, Any property taxes, if they have PMI, which they will if they're buying 5% down, they have PMI payments until that drops off. Uh, Any property insurance payments they're making on that, any maintenance on the properties, and any property management, although they're managing the properties themselves in this particular modeling. Okay. So any net positive cash flow. All the income minus all the expenses. And in addition to that, if they have extra money left over, if they basically have money sitting in a stock market account earning, you know, whatever the stock market account is earning, um, they take that amount of money and they multiply that by what we refer to as a safe withdrawal rate. Um, You know, the most common one, I think the one we're using in this case is probably 4%. So if they had a million dollars in stock, they'd be able to say $40,000 a year of that is contributing toward whether or not they're being financially independent. So we use that too for any extra money they have left over. So if they get to the point where they've bought all their properties, now they have this account balance just growing over time, that would also contribute to them being financially independent. So the sum of all five of those things, in this particular case, these two, net positive cash flow from rental properties and the invested assets times the safe withdrawal rate, plus if they, if they had this going on, which they don't, Social Security annuities or pensions. That all of those combined would then see if they uh, have exceeded their income that they had from their jobs, and that was that is how we would define them being financially independent. Okay, so my assumptions. Each city's modeling uses their median essentially home price and estimated rents on what the median home price in that market would be. Now we did not apply any of our like optimization strategies. We didn't apply any of the 88 strategies that we have. To improve cash flow on rentals, so this is like not like, hey, if you really optimize everything, then this is what it would be. This is sort of like a any investor could come in and achieve these results. That's sort of the what I'm looking to do here. It's not like you're buying exceptional properties. It's not like you're trying to maximize the income and minimize your expenses on your rental and applying those 88 strategies to do that. This is really just generic median income coming in. As I mentioned before, the job income does vary based on the city so that they can afford a property in that marketplace. You know, if I said everybody makes $5,000 a month and they tried to buy a property in California, good luck. They would never buy a property because they never qualify with that 45% debt to income. So I had to adjust incomes when I modeled different markets to say, look, someone in California obviously makes more than someone in, I don't know, let's say Mobile, Alabama, um, you know, which has a, a lower uh, price property than California does. So in cities where they have higher income, they need more passive income, more investment income, more rental income to be considered financially independent. So to more who is given, to those who more is given, more is expected in order for them to be financially independent. It's another way of thinking about that. Uh, We do start everybody with just enough for a down payment to buy a 5% down owner-occupant property with closing costs. So about 7% of the property prices in that market Um, I set a threshold at the bottom to be at least 10K, which I'm not even sure anyone hits the minimum. Uh, But they are buying an owner-occupant property in both scenarios, whether they're doing Nomad or whether they're buying all cash. Um, Now realize though, with Nomad, they keep moving out of it into their next owner-occupant property. When they're buying properties for cash, they live in that first property forever. And this may actually come into play because if they actually pay off their owner-occupant property, the amount that they need in expenses actually goes down And so the amount that they need to be considered financially independent actually goes down because they no longer need to have that mortgage payment in order to be considered financially independent, which is interesting. And they come into play because with the Nomad one, that's 10 years later at least, right? Once they bought their last owner-occupant property. With the buying properties for cash, they bought that property early on. And so that property gets paid off after 30 years. Interest rates here's my assumptions for interest rates. When buying an owner-occupant property, we're assuming they're getting a 6.5% owner-occupant interest rate with 5% down. And in addition to that, it does have private mortgage insurance. That private mortgage insurance is the insurance you pay because you didn't put 20% down to protect the lender in case you default. That's what PMI is, private mortgage insurance. Now, if they were buying rentals, which they're not, right? They're buying owner-occupant properties, but if they were buying rentals and they're paying cash for the other strategy, um, rental rental interest rate I've made the assumption would be 7% for non-owner-occupant, 20% down, and that would not have PMI because you're putting 20% down in that case. But again, we're not using that number because they're buying properties for cash, okay? Um, I also assume that they're earning 7% per year in the stock market as their rate of return there, and I modeled this out for 100 years. I used to model it out for shorter, but I started doing 100 because Sometimes they'd be financially independent right after I stopped my modeling. And I was like, look, we'll just do 100 years and see what it looks like for all those." If you want to see my assumptions for any of these, um, go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, M-O-D-E-L. And you'll be able to see like every different city, a whole bunch of analysis for like all the cities at once. But then you can drill down into any given city and see what my actual modeling is for that particular case, you know, whether they're doing Nomad or buying properties for cash or whatever they're doing there. All right, so here we go, this is it. When do they achieve financial independence? So in, there's 305 cities that I did this modeling for, 305 different US cities. So in the baseline Nomad model, they were, they achieved financial independence faster in 84 out of the 305 cities. So in 84 out of 305 cases, it was better for them as far as speed to financial independence goes, we get to the point where they are completely financially independent. They no longer need to work anymore. In 84 cities out of 305, if they do the baseline nomad model, buying a property with 5% down, moving in, live there for a year, converting it to a rental, okay? In 10 cities, it didn't make any difference which model they took. So 10 out of 305, which is what? I don't know, 3% maybe? You know, about 3% of the time, didn't matter what you could pick either, doesn't matter. But in 84 cities, it was better for you to do nomad, which means that in 211 cities, about two thirds of the time, it was better for you to buy an owner-occupant property and then save up, money, save up money forever, it seems like, in order to buy a property for all cash, then use whatever extra money you have saved up to then save up for the next one that you're gonna buy all cash and repeat this until you're financially independent. It was faster for you to be financially dependent if you did that two thirds of the time and two thirds of the cities by doing the all cash model. That's crazy, right? I think this surprises a lot of people. They're like, wait a minute, how is that even possible? It's gonna take you forever to save up this amount of money in order to buy the properties for all cash. And I'm telling you, it surprises me. (laughs) But the challenge is this, right? Like I think a lot of folks, they assume maximize leverage, you know, get into the deal as quickly as you can get onto the property so that you you, you kind of let your properties appreciate with you. And I'm telling you that that is true in about one third of the cases, a little bit less than a third, but about two thirds of the time with our current economic conditions, my current assumptions, you would have been better off buying rentals, all cash, two thirds of the time, Versus doing nomad. And you know, I'm sure we'll do a comparison where we compare, you know, buying all cash to putting 20% down or putting 25% down, or you know, doing some other strategies in addition to that, like paying off properties early. Like all of these are coming. And a lot of them are already done. If you want to go look on the website to kind of look at them, but you will see classes on this coming up, and we'll see like just how big of a difference doing things like paying off properties, paying off the owner-occupant property, paying off my rental properties, paying off my rental properties with cash flow, paying off my rental properties, or only when I have enough to pay them off in full. Like there's all these differences that are going to come into play, and we're going to see how that plays out. And as the market conditions change, as interest rates go up and down, and maybe the stock market rates of return vary a little bit, or, you know, the, the prices of properties in different markets change, we can adjust all those and rerun them. So, you know, Six months from now, we may have different analysis using slightly different numbers. If rates go up to 10% or they go back down to 3%, we'll rerun them and you can see, okay? All right, so shocking, but 211 cities, it's better to do the owner-occupant than to buy nine, up to nine, all cash, up to nine properties, all cash, than it is to do Nomad, which is 84 cities. And here is the distribution of when they actually end up being financially independent. It looks like there's a lot of clusters um, right around here when they pay off their first property. So for a lot of these situations, there's a lot of them that become financially independent when they were otherwise buying properties for cash when they pay off their owner-occupant property completely, right? Because that happens after 30 years. And so right after this 360-month period, there's a big bump of a whole bunch of them becoming financially independent. And you don't see that for the, those doing Nomad because that happens at least after month 480, sometimes even longer. Okay, but you can see this distribution. And there are some cases where it took a long time for them paying all cash for properties and there are more of these baseline nomad ones that that have done that, okay? So it's not like universally better, but two thirds of the time it's better. Okay, this is a chart showing you. This answers the question of, so is it the more expensive markets where this is the case or is it the less expensive markets? And I will tell you that it looks like sometimes when you're buying properties in more expensive markets, it tends to be better to do them all cash, which is surprising for me, at least, I don't know, probably for you too. Uh, but it's not universally true. It's not like, hey, on the low end, it's always better to do Nomad. On the low end, sometimes it's better to do Nomad. Sometimes it's better to pay all cash. But for the higher end, it seems like most of the dots, which represents each city, most of the dots show you that it's better. It's green uh, when you do the uh, nine properties all cash as prices get higher. Now, this is an exception. You know, this one's about a million dollars, a little bit less than a million dollar property prices in that marketplace. And in that case, it's better to actually have done Nomad. But a lot of times it's better, like these green dots over here, as properties get more expensive, it shows you that, okay? Um, the other thing I'll point out is sometimes it's a lot better. Like over here, it's a lot of months better to have done all cash than it is to have done nomad uh, because you can see the distance from this zero shows you how much faster it is. And so sometimes it's just a little bit faster when they're really close to zero, either side of the line. And sometimes it's a lot faster. Like this is over a hundred months faster, which is like what, eight years, nine years, nine times twelve, is it's in months. So this is about, you know, eight or nine years or so faster. And then these are more than that to go ahead and see. Okay. All right. So now we talked about speed to financial independence. You're like, okay, you know. Maybe in some cases, it might be faster to do all cash. But what about net worth? You know, if you're buying all these rental properties with 5% down, you're highly leveraged, surely net worth has got to be better when you're doing the nomad strategy because you're buying properties, you're leveraged, your net worth is growing. And so what is net worth at year 40? It's kind of our arbitrary cutoff. We, we can do charts for all the net worth throughout the whole time, but we're basically picking year 40 to compare. And I will tell you in 245 of the cities at a 305, 245 at a 305, which I think is about 80%, I'll ballpark in that, it could be wrong on that, but I think it's about 80%. 80% of the time, your net worth is higher if you did the Nomad strategy. So 80% of the time, you'd have a higher net worth if you did the Nomad strategy. 47 cities at a 305, you would have a higher net worth if you did the all cash model. And in 13 cities, it didn't matter at all, okay? So realize that, We're kind of of splitting our goals here. If you want to be financially independent fastest, the majority of the time, it's better to do the all-cash ones. If you want to have the highest net worth, it might be better for you to do Nomad. Crazy. You have to make a decision. Do I want FI or do I want highest net worth? And sometimes it's a combination of those, right? Sometimes you're willing to do a little bit of each. Maybe you don't, you know, not that we did this today, but maybe you don't save up until you have all cash. Maybe you save up until you buy the property with 50% down. And we can see what that would look like if we decide to model that in the future. All right, here's the net worth difference. When you do the ones where it's all cash, those tend to be relatively small differences in net worth. So where that is the winner, it's not like you have massively higher net worth. It is relatively small amounts of more net worth when you do it that way. When you do the Nomad model, sometimes it's significantly higher net worth, like tens of millions of dollars better, okay? So just realize that when you do Nomad, sometimes Nomad is way, way better. Not always, but sometimes it's way, way better. When you do the ones where you buy all cash, sometimes the net worth difference is really small. Most of the time it's really small. And if you look at the ones where is a different based on price, it looks like the higher price you go, the more so you're, more likely you are that there's no difference at all. All these gray dots are right at the point where there's no difference in in net worth. Okay? So that's what tends to happen as prices increase. All right, in a couple of cases where you're doing the nomad strategy and you're only putting five percent down, and we're only making sure that you have six months of reserves and we're not optimizing for cash flow at all by using any of the 88 strategies, and you're buying basically median properties with you know what rent would be on those median properties, you know, in those cases. We've seen nine cities, nine of the 305, where you actually run out of money at, at least at one point or more uh, when you're doing the nomad strategy. Now, we could solve this problem, right? We could decide, hey, look, we're about to buy a property. It's going to have some negative cash flow because we're only putting 5% down in that particular marketplace. We could set aside the negative cash flow that we would need before we buy the property, be more conservative. And in that case, you are not likely to run out of money at all. Or, You know, you decide to go buy slightly better properties or buy down the interest rate or, you know, wait until or do something to improve your cash flow, like don't do a short-term rental instead of doing a traditional long-term rental or whatever you could do in order to improve that. There are strategies we could do, but there were nine cities with our really basic modeling to show that um, you ran out of money if you did Nomad. If you did the all cash model, you never ran out of money. It's less risky. You know, when you don't get loans and you're not leveraged at all, uh, the chance of you having negative cash flow is almost zero. You know, if you're buying a rental property and you're paying all cash, there's no mortgage. And the mortgage typically is a very large expense of that. So there's no negative cash flow on any of this. Okay. All right. And you can see that it tends to be the higher price properties that tend to be the ones that ran out of money. So um, definitely over a million dollars, except for a couple here, around 500,000. There were like maybe two that were under 500,000. The rest of these were, you know, $1 million properties or more. Those are the ones that tended to be the ones that ran out of money. All right. Now here's the summary. And this summarizes, you know, like net worth and how much they were short the number of properties that they bought and how long it took them to achieve financial independence, plus six different measures of risk. Okay, and so I did both the median of all of these for all the cities and then I do the average. So on median, median is when you take all the different numbers. So let's say we're talking about net worth at year 40. So you take the lowest net worth at year 40 and you take the highest net worth at year 40. The median is the middle most number from that list sorted highest to lowest. Okay, and so the median net worth of someone doing the nomad strategy is about eight point two million dollars 40 years in the future. If you want to know what that is, sort of like today's dollars, if you divide by three, you'll get a rough idea. So it's like, uh, I don't know, 2.6, 2.7, somewhere around there, um, is about what the net worth would be in today's dollars, if you think about that, okay? So that's for someone doing Nomad. $8.2 million is what it is in the non-inflation adjusted back to today. So what was it if you bought the properties all cash? Well, it was 6.8, a difference of $1.4 million. Or another way of saying that is, when we look at the median, doing Nomad was 17.5% better in terms of net worth. Non-trivial, I mean, that's not not insignificant. 17.5% better for you to do Nomad. If we look at on average though, Nomad was 30% better because some of them were really, really significantly better. You know, so the average for the Nomad one was 11.9 million net worth. The, the average for the buying all cash one was 8.2 million. And so that's a $3.6 million difference or about 30.5% better to do Nomad in terms of net worth. However, let's look at how long it takes someone to be financially independent. The minimum target monthly income in retirement achieved. Okay, so if you did the Nomad strategy, it took you 529 months on median versus 447 months. That's a difference of, on median, the middlemost number of 82 months. Seven times 12 is 84, if I'm not mistaken. Seven times 12 is 84. I think it's eighty-four, so that's about almost seven years better to do the all cash one. It's about fifteen percent, fifteen point five percent better to have done all cash for achieving financial independence on median. If we look at average, it was five hundred forty-seven months on average, <clears throat> excuse me, to do nomad, or four hundred ninety-eight months on average to do the all cash ones. Let me take a drink and mute myself. I'm back. All right. So for the baseline nomad one is for 547 months versus 498 on average, or about 49 months difference, about four years on average, faster for you to do all cash rentals than it was for you to do nomad, or about nine percent better. Remember at the beginning, I said, you know, what if I could save you four years off of your, you know, the time you were working a job you didn't love to become financially independent? Well, that's what I'm showing you on average. It's four years faster for you to do all cash than to do Nomad. So if you were planning on doing the Nomad strategy right now with our current economic conditions in all the different cities in the U S 305 cities that we modeled it's four years faster for you to save up and do all cash. Whew, mind blown. Okay. Now let's look at risk. When we look at, when we look at the median for risk in all the ways that we measure risk. Risk is usually about like how much can rents go down before you have negative cash flow or how much can prices go down before you have you know negative equity or like what's your debt to income rate, your average debt to income for the whole scenario or, or what's your average debt to net worth? If you kind of want to measure like your, how much debt load you're carrying compared to your net worth or your liquidity to your debt, your debt to account balance, like all of those are different measures of risk and they all, a lot of them include a measure of risk as measured through debt load like how much debt you have. And then of course, the number of months of reserves. But in five of the six different measures of risk, you would have been better off paying all cash. Well, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? You're not getting loans on these properties. So it's less risky to do those types of strategies. You don't, if you don't have any debt at all, your debt to income is gonna be better, right? If you don't have any debt at all, well, you do have debts. You're buying the owner-occupied property at first. But if you only have one property that has debt and nine of the other ones don't, then you're gonna be less risky. If you only have one property with debt and nine of the other ones don't, your debt to net worth is going to be better or your debt to your account balance is going to be better. And so in all those cases, both in average and median, it is better, less risky for you to buy the properties all cash. So with less risk, you also are financially independent faster. However, when you take on this more risk, you end up with, on average and on median, a higher net worth. Not universally. There are some where it's different, but most of the time. Okay? All right, so now just a reminder, we've been talking about like this median property and the rent on that median property. We could go and apply all these 88 strategies that we have to improve cash flow to improve these numbers for those with the rentals, okay? We're basically using median price properties and what rent might be on those in each of the market. You, as an individual, should be able to choose and do better than what I've talked about. And I do model some of those improvements and the impact, and some of the other things we're doing, where you know I'm saying you're getting better rent, or buying at a discount, or you know you're buying a slightly different price property, or whatever. Now, if you are an expert in your local market, and you want to help me improve the kind of numbers that I'm modeling in your local market please do reach out via email and I can update the numbers in our database, rerun all the stereos and get updated versions of both the individual cities analysis and also the aggregate analysis we've done on all 305 cities. So just reach out to me and kind of tell me, hey, look, James, your numbers you're using for whatever market you're in that you're an expert at um, are slightly off. You know, they're slightly higher. Be nice, by the way. Uh, But they're, they're, you know, they're slightly higher than what they should be or they're slightly lower than what they should be. You know, and, and I'm not looking for like the best case of well, I did this deal three years ago and it was amazing, and so we should use that for the modeling. No, I, what I want to use is uh, is numbers that any real estate investor could go in and achieve. I don't want to set this bar and say you know the top five percent of investors in that market who are just like destroying it, they're crushing it, they're doing like most amazing that they possibly can. I don't want to use those numbers because it's unrealistic for them to for others to achieve that. So I want to use like you know the the numbers that any real estate investor that goes to that market could use and realistically achieve. But if you want to come help me and do those numbers, great, let's do those. Let's improve the numbers. We'll do the analysis again for all the different models we've done for your city. And then it'll also update automatically and all the aggregate stuff. So if you are, reach out and do that. Now, when you're doing the nomad strategy where you're buying a property 5% down, you're moving into the property, you're living there for at least a year, you must be buying properties in that local market. But when we're buying properties all cash or buying properties even with 20% down or 25% down or 15% down, non-owner occupant investment properties, and we're not moving into them, we technically don't need to be buying in those same marketplaces, right? If you live in a really expensive market where the economics of buying rentals are really hard to make work, you know, like you're buying properties where the rent is really low compared to what the price is and you can't make them cash flow, you don't have to buy in that same market where you live. You could say, why don't I go to another market that has better cash flow economics and buy those properties elsewhere? So if you're doing nomad, you have to, by definition, do it in your local market, unless you're willing to move markets and then you're not doing it in that market anyway. But if you if you're doing it in your local market because you're doing nomad, you have to be buying properties because you're moving in and living there. If you're doing any other strategy where you're buying investment properties, non-owner occupant properties, all cash. 20% down, 25% down, 50% down, 50% down, 75% down, doesn't really matter. You could buy in better markets and improve your cash flow. So it should be better than what we're even showing. Okay. So I just wanted to point that out as an obvious point, but hopefully it's obvious to you. All right. So in conclusion, in our current market conditions, current price, current interest rates, current rents in 305 US markets, using what I would consider to be less than ideal median price to rent properties, buying properties all cash. Tends to outperform the nomad strategy for speed doing financial independence and lowering of risk. However, you tend to have a higher net worth when you do the nomad strategy. So, your standard of living another way of saying this is your standard of living in retirement will probably be higher when you do the nomad strategy. The market does matter though. In some markets, it's better to buy all cash, and in others, it's better to nomad. Generally, Getting loans, especially 5% down, high loan to value tends to be riskier whenever we measure risk with debt. So it's best if you look at your specific market and apply as many of the eighty-eight cash flow improving strategies as practically possible to improve on your own implementation. And you can go to real forward slash model to drill down into your own city and see this. That's all I got. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope my kind of like sleazy sales pitch of what if I could show you a way to not be working for four more years? I mean, I, I do feel that's true, but I also feel like it it's sound, just sounds sleazy, right? So I hope though that that motivated you and uh, you were intrigued as I was with this particular modeling of the real estate investing stuff. So this has been James Orr. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. cash flow on rental properties in Austin is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Austin that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast.